6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verse 18, through chapter 19, verse 25. And like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest, small point that you and I, not being agriculturally oriented, may catch here, having dew in the spring is wonderful, in the harvest it's bad. In other words, verse 4 is not good. Okay, a cloud of dew and the heat of harvest ain't good. It may sound like it, but it's uh, agriculturally, you know, if you're a farmer, that would not be going on. And for before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening on the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They shall be left together unto the fowls of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the fowls shall summer upon them, and all the beasts of the earth shall winter upon them. It's in very agricultural terms, but it's basically talking about judgment. It will not be a good harvest. It will be judged. Be judged. And then verse 7 sort of wraps it up. In, the, in that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts by a people scattered and stripped from a people terrible from the beginning to this time, a nation measured out and trampled underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. So verse 7 is sort of a recap of the introductory phrases in verse 2. Between those, you have a judgment. So a number of people publish books saying, aha, see this is the United States, and they go through all the bending of the text, and there's an old expression in the, the uh, data processing industry, if you torture the data enough, it'll eventually confess, you see. And so uh, some of these things are of that nature. Well, I've been sort of skipping along, as you can tell, because I was anxious to make sure we got to 19. And uh, since we are a little ahead of schedule, I apparently overdid it. There's probably a number of notes that I have failed to share with you. I know you feel very deprived about that, but uh, bear up, right? <laughs> now, uh, chapter 19 is on Egypt. And um, since we're a little ahead of schedule, we'll jump right in. Chapter 19, verse 1. The burden of Egypt, the Masa, the burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Egyptians against Egyptians, and they shall fight every one against his brother, and every one against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. Now, this obviously has had a historical fulfillment. But there are portions of it that sound very contemporary. If you've been following and do any reading of the background of some of the recent wars between Israel and Egypt, uh, this is rather graphic. Egypt will be mentioned seven times in the front end of this. Uh, let's go a little further. Verse 3, The spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst of it, and I will destroy the counsel of it. And they shall seek to the idols, to the charmers, and to the mediums, and to the, I should say, channelers, and uh, to the wizards. And the Egyptians will I give over to the hand of a cruel Lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them, saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now, I should mention a little background here. Egypt at the time Isaiah was writing outwardly was in an alliance with Judah. 
The northern kingdom, the house of Israel, was in alliance with Syria. southern kingdom had a uh, loose outward alliance with uh, Egypt. Isaiah told him not to rely on Egypt as an ally for a lot of reasons. And Egypt falls apart. A lot of internal strife. There's internal uh, wars among the various elements. They fall apart. They become a series of independent states. But they are then reunited by a Tsemetikos, uh, a, uh, a very cruel lord who may be the fulfillment of verse 4, that brought them back together and rewelded it into a nation. Now it's interesting that Egypt's original, way, way back, uh, religion apparently was monotheistic, but of course in all of this it becomes very polytheistic, and of course the ten plagues in um, the book of Exodus speak of the gods that uh, Egypt worshipped the birds, the beasts, the, uh, the reptiles, the crocodiles, the asps, the insects, the scarabs, and uh, Beelzebub, in fact, means the flies. All of that, of course, is the background for the plagues, the ten plagues of Exodus, but they are anyway regathered re under the uh, rulership of a cruel lord. It's interesting, too, though, some scholars feel that verse 4 has also been fulfilled in its subsequent history, because uh, Egypt, when it was taken over by the Arabs and then the and then the Turks, the, Tur the Ottoman Empire, was taxed into poverty that it is never recovered from. And the back of that country was broken through the taxation of those centuries of rule under the Ottoman Empire, and uh, it has uh, never rebounded from that. But now I'd like to jump in a little bit in verses 5 through 10. Let's back up a little bit before we do that. Let's recount some more familiar history. If you did any reading in ecology or, or, or current events in the 60s, you may recall that the great project of the decade was the Aswan Dam. Egypt, throughout its history, has been uh, benefited by the Nile. The Nile is its major backbone. It goes through cycles of flooding that, on the one hand, are crucial, to their agriculture, on the other hand, a nuisance. And the Aswan Dam was conceived and then executed to put the Nile under, quote, control, close quote. And it took 10 years to build it. And if you read in the 60s, there were frequent articles of all this, this incredible project called the Aswan Dam that the Soviet Union assisted Egypt with. And, of course, it was finished, uh, I think, essentially uh, the 70s. I've forgotten the exact dates. If you read the articles subsequent to 1970 of the results of the Aswan Dam, it's fascinating. And if you want to read one of those articles by going to the library and digging out a, you know, one of the magazines, you can do that. Or you can read Isaiah chapter 19, verses 5 through 11. The waters shall fail from the sea, and the rivers shall be wasted and dried up, and they shall turn the rivers far away, and the brooks of defense shall be emptied and dried up. The reeds and the flags shall wither. Paper reeds by the brooks, and by the mouth of the brooks, everything sown by the brooks shall wither, be driven away, and be no more. The fishers also shall mourn, and all they that cast hook into the brooks shall lament. And they that spread nets upon the waters shall languish. Moreover, they that work in fine flax, and they that weave cotton cloth shall be confounded. And they shall be broken in the purposes thereof all that make the sluices and ponds for fish. <laughs> it's interesting, because since the Aswan Dam has been put in place, the water is no longer muddy, it's clear, it's wonderful, they got it all in control, except the problem is, what the Nile always did is it brought nutrients downriver, 
Those nutrients provided an attraction for fish in the Mediterranean so that the fishing industry of Egypt was always rich and plentiful. It ain't anymore. They're all starving to death. You've got a 40 million people nation that's got a problem feeding itself. Furthermore, it turns out there are some snails that attack the flax, which makes the linen, and these reeds and the various things upon which Egypt has been dependent for millennia. These snails were always washed away by the flooding of the Nile. With the control of the Aswan Dam, the snails have multiplied and killed off all those crops that, upon which Egypt used to gain an enormous economic benefit. There have been articles printed that one of the best things they could do would be to blow the thing up. <laughs> okay, But um, the ecologists have had a field day because they're great at 20-20 hindsight, and they, of course, point out that all the things they should have done or they should have known and so forth. That's great. In fairness to the experts, some of these interdependencies, these closed-loop systems, uh, operate counterintuitively, as you may know. And uh, so these things are tragic and unfortunate. But it's a mammoth, mammoth project that was not thought through and has, of course, tragically injured Egypt, and the criticism of it is laid out rather clearly right here. Verse 11, surely the princes of Zon, and by the way, a little background, Zon is on the northeast border of Egypt. Another name for Zon is Tanis. And those of you that uh, may remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, of all the several different theories about the Ark of the Covenant, they picked up the one that it was hidden in Tanis to make the little tongue-in-cheek plot thing work. But you may recall Tanis there. It's just that's the it's in the northeast border of Egypt. Its biblical name is Zon. Surely the princes of Zon are fools. The council of the wise counselors of Pharaoh has become stupid. How say ye unto Pharaoh? I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Where are they? Where are the wise men? Let them tell thee now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts hath purposed upon Egypt. The princes of Zon are become fools. The princes of Memphis are deceived. They have also seduced Egypt, even they that are the stay of its tribes. It's been suggested that verses 11, 12, and 13 might be typed up and sent to the ministry in the Soviet Union that gave them the technical assistance to, to build that dam. The Lord hath mingled a perverse spirit in the midst of it, and they have caused Egypt to err in every work of it, as a drunken man staggereth in his vomit. <laughs> Isaiah is not short of articulation. Huh? As we go, you know, it's even in the English, you notice how he shifts styles. You know, he's a very rich writer. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a stilted style at all. He, he really rises to the occasion. Verse 15. Neither shall there be any work it for Egypt, which the head or tail brancher bush may do. Tragic, tragic situation. The poverty, the unemployment, the uh, agriculture. Tragic situation. You know, Anwar Sadat, when he did his peace treaty with Israel, was... Uh, uh, well advised. He, in effect, uh, alienated himself, sacrificed his life, frankly, for peace in the Middle East because he had 40 million people to feed and to deal with, and he didn't have time for all the other stuff. Verse 16, in that day shall Egypt be like women. I apologize, gals. Isaiah uses an idiom, a figure of speech here that uh, is, of course, quite old-fashioned and chauvinistic. I apologize for him on that. And that day shall Egypt be like women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt, 
Everyone that maketh mention of it shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. Interesting. If you read any of the stories of the Yom Kippur War and all of this, it's interesting to uh, see the terror. And, of course, there's a lot of uh, you know, barracks humor that comes out of those wars. But clearly, though, the, uh, the land of Israel was a terror unto uh, Egypt. It's interesting that Eric Sharon and his tank corps, <laughs> you know, crossed over and uh, circled the entire Egyptian Third Army. There's reason to believe that... Uh, Moscow and the United States knew what he had done before he did. Because in the heat of battle, he may not have realized his full tactical advantage, but the Kremlin knew about it right away, and they were boarding troop ships to enter. And uh, Khrushchev called Nixon to, assuming nothing would happen, that he was going to go into the war. It was one of the things Nixon did right. He went right away and uh, put everything on alert and sent Kissinger in there, and they de-escalated it down. But it was getting pretty exciting. Of course, Israel is pretty upset because by our interference, they, they, we disenfranchised them of the advantage. They had actually circled and cut off the entire Egyptian Third Army. It's one of those cases where the satellite reconnaissance was better than the tactical insights available. But uh, it causes Israel to make the quip, uh, the one, you know, after the Persian, you know, 100-hour Persian Gulf crisis, the quip that Israel says, the one thing that Israel exports to the United States is how not to finish a war. See, so, In any case... In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. And you change one vowel, and that is the city of Heliopolis, the suburb of Cairo. In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border of it to the Lord. Now that's kind of a weird phrase. In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Okay. And a pillar at the border of it to the Lord. The next verse says, And it shall be for a sign. Now, wait a minute. That means that the pillar and, which also could be monument, the monument and the altar are the same thing, right? Because it mentions it twice, but in typical Hebrew structure, they'll often say something two different ways. As you read the Proverbs, you'll notice the whole concept of Hebrew poetry is not meter and rhyme. It's rather, it's putting two ideas in juxtaposition. Sometimes they're contrasts, sometimes they're comparisons, which are different. And uh, sometimes they're the same thing, just said two ways, right? That's the typical Hebrew style. Here, though, it says, In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border of it to the Lord. Well, you and I would think that something that's in the middle of the country and something that's in the border would be contradiction. Turns out, though, that when we sent an ambassador to check out the Suez Canal progress way back when, the cartographer, he happened to notice in, in studying Cairo and the rest, he noticed two things simultaneously. One is that Egypt traditionally has been the marriage of two countries, Upper and Lower Egypt. Upper Egypt being the southern part, that is upriver, Lower Egypt being in the Delta region. And the pharaoh of Egypt always had a, a helmet or a, a crown that was two colors, red and white, for Upper and Lower Egypt. His title, all through the many dynasties of Egypt, he was the pharaoh of Upper and Lower Egypt. Where is the border between Upper and Lower Egypt? Right through a place called Giza, which in Arabic means border. It also happens that that place is a place that it, you, if you look at the northern part of Egypt, it is like a quadrant of a circle. In other words, one-fourth of a circle. 
because the Nile Delta is almost a perfect curve, uh, radius. And if you put a compass to draw that, the point of your compass sits at a place called Giza, which in Arabic means border. What is located at that point? The Great Pyramid. So many scholars feel that Isaiah chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, refer to the Great Pyramid. If that's true, it's kind of interesting. In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border of it to the Lord, and it shall be for a sign, and a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Really? For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior, a great one, and he shall deliver them. Whew, kind of neat. Kind of interesting. I'll come back to this. Let's just finish the chapter, and then we'll come back to that whole issue. Verse 21. And you'll discover that this starts to become very millennial. What we're about to read is yet future. It's in the millennium, but it's very interesting. Verse 21. The Lord shall be known to Egypt. The Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. And shall do sacrifice and oblation. Oh, really? Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. The Lord shall smite Egypt, and he shall smite and heal it. And they shall return, even to the Lord. And he shall be entreated by them, and shall heal them. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian unto Assyria. And the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. I know it's hard to believe that any Arab group would communicate with each other and be cooperative, you know. But it's interesting. Verse 24. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Fabulous. Peace at that time. But it's millennial. Don't look for it on the near horizon. But let's get back to verse 19 and 20. The more you study the Great Pyramid of Egypt, the more mysterious it becomes. The first thing you learn if you really dig into this is that it's not Egyptian. Uh, Manathos, which is one of the main priestly scribes who crept a chronicle upon which we build most of our understanding of the early dynasties and the ancient history of Egypt, records the building of the Great Pyramid as occurring by a group of people that came he called them the Hyksos. He presumed they were from Arabia or somewhere. They came and took over the country without a battle. Some scholars infer by some kind of mind control. When they came, they destroyed all the polytheistic temples and shrines. They built the Great Pyramid and then left. Strange stuff. Strange stuff. As we study the Great Pyramid, we're fascinated because, see, all the other pyramids of Egypt are set up for tombs. The tombs are underneath the pyramid. The pyramid itself is essentially solid. The tomb is underneath the pyramid. The Great Pyramid at Giza is very, very different. It is filled with angles and channels and passageways. And next time we meet, we'll have a view graph, and I'll take you through this. Many people in history have presumed that the pyramid at Giza was designed to be just a complicated labyrinth of tombs, except it's never been used that way. 
It turns out that the Great Pyramid, first of all, its physical structure is rather staggering. It covers 13 acres. It has uh, six and a half million tons of stones, some of which weigh 15 tons each. They are fitted together within a precision of the cracks are true to within one-fiftieth of an inch. The uh, passageways are so precise, like within a fiftieth of an inch in a 150-foot span, you would have a tough time building it today with laser-aligned drilling tools. It is level within one inch on 13 acres. If anybody's in surveying, think about that. The precision of the uh, fittings are more precise in relative to their linear lengths than the tiles on our space shuttle. But that's just the beginning. It's lined up exactly with the cardinal points, the, the meridians of the Earth, due north, south, and all that. The mathematics of the Great Pyramid include frequently 54 different ways it speaks of the number pi in mathematics, the ratio of the, which is something that the experts didn't think Egyptians discovered for a thousand years later. The ratio of pi over e, if you're in calculus, is embodied in the structures. If you look at the dimensions of the Great Pyramid, you discover that it is a mathematical model of our solar system the distance of the Earth to the Sun, the size of the Earth, and so forth. And the more you get into this, it's easy to get caught up in this thing and totally absorbed and become what some people call a pyramidiot, okay? <laughs> but what makes it such a provocative thing is there are those that believe that the internal passageways of the Great Pyramid lay out the gospel that the passageways, the angles, speak of the uh, exodus of Egypt, the birth of Christ, the time of his baptism, and I'll, hope, I'll take you through it easier with a diagram, why people have embraced that idea. Part of the search of the Great Pyramid has to do with determining its basic unit of measure, called a pyramid inch. It turns out that the pyramid is 5,449 pyramid inches high. If you take the Hebrew text, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 19 and 20 in Hebrew, and take the numerical values of the letters, what do you think it adds up to? 5,449, the height of the pyramid in pyramid inches. So on it goes, and I'll, sh I'll share with you some of the things that they've discovered or feel they've discovered about the Great Pyramid, which makes it appear that it fits this very thing that God talks about in Isaiah 19, right? Okay, that's just for starters, friends. In the Salisbury Plain in England, there is a monument called Stonehenge. And I had occasion for a number of reasons many years ago to study it intensely, for a lot of reasons. And of course, Gerald Hawkins is famous for his discovery that that ancient monument, built uh, 3,500 years ago or more, is in fact an astronomical computer. It predicts eclipses, among other things. And it's hard to talk about Stonehenge without having diagrams, so we'll talk about Stonehenge too. But its architecture is built around four key stones that make an approximate rectangle. There's only one latitude in the northern hemisphere where a rectangle would have the predictive properties that it has, and Stonehenge is less than a mile from that latitude. And the rectangle is just a hair off, as the exact adjustment you need to make up for that mile, so that it will predict certain things. The two diagonal stones of that, of that rectangle, 
point in azimuth to 118 degrees from north, which lines it up directly with the Great Pyramid of Egypt. People who have studied Stonehenge believe that the same architect had to build both of them, that the Great Pyramid in Egypt and that the monument at Stonehenge were masterminded by the same architect. The speculations are all over the map, and we'll go over those next time, but they include the idea that both monuments were built by Shem, the son of Noah. And I'll show you why they believe that next time. See, the other thing that people have discovered is that the ancient Egyptian culture is known among scholars as having a strange paradox in that it starts at a high level. There isn't a buildup. The earliest records of Egypt have central government, mathematics, astronomy, all kinds of skills, and it puzzles them because it isn't as if it, there's sort of a buildup, a, a growth, a learning period. They're just there. The same thing's true in Mesopotamia, the Sumerian culture. They have language. Now they're beginning to discover there's some links between them. Now, that causes scholars to be puzzled. Science has a gigantic dilemma. Because anyone that is informed today cannot buy evolution. It's an old idea that we were all brought up on, but it's nonsense. Current discoveries in most fields of science have totally debunked the idea that biogenesis occurred by itself. That's preposterous. Uh, the cosmologists now and the current insights to the so-called Big Bang models clearly demonstrate that the universe is finite and had a beginning that not only matter and energy but time and space started. You could argue about exactly when, but it had a beginning. That's embarrassing, because if it had a beginning, somebody had to start it. Secondly, since 1957 and the discovery of the DNA molecule and the discovery that the DNA code is a digital code, error-correcting digital code, is mind-blowing. It totally destroys the idea that we're here in the absence of design. So science has got a problem. How are they going to begin to re-rationalize our whole tradition? So we'll explore that next time, the Great Pyramid, the Stonehenge, and all of that. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.